how many of you have ever experienced any relational conflict in an organization that you've been a part of? Okay, there we go. No, no one, no one. Okay, so, like, and let's think if we broaden this out, organization could include, like, your family, right? Occasionally, it's been known to happen, even in my family, that we get grumpy with each other and it's hard to get along. Uh, sometimes we can think that, uh, look, the church is somewhere that should be utterly immune from this. And, uh, and sometimes we can think, well, you know, no, no, the church is better than that. And, and you know, it should be, it could be, but it isn't. And what I'm going to do today from Act 6 is give you a way to limit the conflict in all the systems that you are part of and find a way to bear witness to change the world to make your marriage, your family, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, and your church a place that is more full of joy, that is more effective in, uh, in what it's called to do, and, uh, and that grows. I'm going to give that all of that to you in the next 25 minutes. Uh, isn't that going to be awesome? And it comes with a money-back guarantee. Here's the thing, right? If you do what this text says, what I'm going to suggest, and you apply this daily for the next 10 years, and it doesn't bring profound positive impact in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your church, if it doesn't do that, you can come and get back any money that you're going to put in the plate today. It's a money-back guarantee. We'll give you interest on it as well, 2%. Okay, makes sense? That's where we're going. So, Here's the thing about conflict in human systems. It's inevitable. It is inevitable. I spent a lot of money some years ago doing a master's degree in organization dynamics. And here's the most profound and powerful thing I learned. Three years of master's study, and, they, and, the, and the lecturer at one point said this, um, conflict occurs at the boundary of a shared task. In fact, he said, conflict always occurs at the boundary of a shared task. Whenever you try and do something together with somebody else, at that point where you're trying to do that thing, that's where you're going to have conflict. It's just an inevitability, isn't it? It, it, it will happen. So then what you've got to do is you've got to figure out how to see that conflict as a way that will help you grow and flourish and get better at doing what it is that God has called you to do. The early church was in just such a situation, just such a situation. You see in Acts, we're doing, doing this journey through Acts, which is the story of the early church. And oh my goodness, the church has been going absolutely gangbusters. It's gone from a little group of people huddling, hiding away, depressed, miserable, their leaders being crucified, uh, they're all terrified. It's gone from that in a few short months to an explosive social movement where the leadership of the church is standing up and preaching in public, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are joining this new Jesus movement. It is absolutely going nuts. And you would think, in a church that was going nuts with growth, where people were being healed, the gospel was being preached, the apostles were there. It was extraordinary. The world had never seen anything like this. You would think that of any social organism in the world, that social organism would be free from conflict because it's so great, so awesome, so amazing. 
wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, okay. But it's not. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, these are um, people who were from who didn't live in Israel, but lived in other parts of the Roman Empire. They were fundamentally Greek in their background, but they were now living in Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem and the, and the first century was very divided culturally. So these people now, um, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Caring for widows and orphans is a massively significant, fundamentally important part of the life of faith. Right from the get-go, when God brought together his people in the Old Testament, he said, listen, you've got to look after widows and orphans. You've got to care for the needy. Your faith is utterly pointless and invalid and not real faith and, and not religion that pleases God if you don't care for those in need. And so the first, the early church was doing that because uh, the social welfare network in Jerusalem at the time centered on the temples. So basically, all the leftover food from the sacrifices was distributed to the poor and the needy. Now, as these early, this early church, as they started to follow Jesus, the hierarchy in the temple didn't want anything to do with them. So the church had to start caring for its own widows and orphans. And as they exploded in growth, a bunch of the Hellenistic Jews looked at what the Hebraic Jews' widows were getting and went, ah, oh, our widows are losing out. They're missing out. It's a problem of growth. It's exploding. But it's really interesting. You say, well, okay, that's great, Mark. They have a problem of growth. And then they, they raised the issue and they dealt with it, came up with a, a rest they restructured their organization. They developed a, dia a, way, a diaconate, a way of meeting the needs of the poor, and it was all good. And you go, yeah, that's true. But actually, there's a deeper thing here. The recipe for transforming your marriage and your family and your workplace, we find right here in verse 2. And it starts off by understanding what the problem is with conflict. And here's the problem. Can you see it? You may not be able to see it. The problem is in this little word here. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained. You say, well, you know, isn't that what you're meant to do? Well, no, 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 no. Listen, there's, a, there's this word here that is used in the Greek is a very particular word. It's not chosen by accident. It's a very particular word, and in fact, uh, this word actually means, uh, as can be translated more helpfully, actually grumbling or murmuring. I think murmuring has two R's at the end. Can anyone actually read what I'm writing there? Because I can't. <laughs> the M's, in all my hand, the M's and the U's and the R's all sort of look the same, and you go, oh, I get the, it's the vibe, right? So grumbling and murmuring is a problem. That's, that's actually the heart of the problem for the church. That's the real danger, the danger for the church, and why this little thing is addressed. The danger is not that there was uh, the structure's were not adequate to the need, because that's easy to be solved. The problem is the spiritual and relational dynamic of grumbling 
and murmuring. Now, let's think about why that might be a problem. Why might that be a problem? Well, it's a problem because grumbling and murmuring are a, a way of dividing, a way of diminishing, a way of distracting an organization or a system from doing the work that it's meant to do. Grumbling and murmuring tears apart relationships because grumbling and murmuring assume a stance of criticism of the person and the, ascribe motives to the person. And normally those in leadership, they play the, the man or the person and not the ball. And so are very divisive and destructive. And in Christian terms, grumbling and murmuring betray a fundamental lack of trust in God. And that is what's really wrong with it and why it's so damaging. Let's have a think about this, right? Have a think. Uh, um, I mean, this, you, you'll see how damaging it is. What, is, what, what occasioned this spill uh, in the Liberal Party this week? Nearly three years of grumbling and murmuring, relentlessly, right? I mean, just... Ten years. Ten years of grumbling and murmuring. Yeah, that's right. And then, yeah, not since John Howard. What, and then, what, well, what occasioned the Rudd-Gillard split? It's the same thing, grumbling and murmuring and grumbling and murmuring and grumbling and murmuring, attacking the other person. And, and look, let me say right up, grumbling and murmuring is a massive problem for every one of us here, we all very easily and very quickly fall into it. Don't we? That's why it's so hard. I mean, you might even experience this sermon as me grumbling and murmuring, except I'm not. My heart is full of gratitude. But you could think of it that way. I mean, it's very... We, I've, I found it's fascinating, right? The more I thought about this, and I'll, I'll get to the, why it's such a spiritual problem. The more I thought about it this week, the more I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. <sighs> have mercy on us as a culture. I looked at stuff that came up on my Facebook feed, and gosh, isn't, I mean, social media just magnifies the murmuring. It gives a megaphone to the murmurers. Uh, and, and I looked at what some of my friends, and I use that term loosely after what they wrote, was saying about someone like Scott Morrison. And I thought, this is outrageous. I mean, no matter what you think of his policies, to say that about another human being in public, on social media, it's a terrible grumbling and murmuring and complaining. How can we build a united society where we actually, actually solve the refugee problem and bring the kids back uh, from Nauru, which seems to me, you know, not that I want to get too political, but on the face of it, indefinite detention of children seems like not a really smart policy. Just putting it out there. Forgive me if you disagree. But, but it's a massively challenging issue, and we can't address it as a society when actually people on the left and the right who disagree are complaining, and their complaints and their grumbling are magnified, and what it actually is is attacking the person, attacking the person. You're an evil person. You're a terrible person. You're this. So what it does is it assumes conspiracy, not incompetence. I have this aphorism I use all the time. Assume incompetence, not conspiracy. 
assume that whatever the pain or the stress in the system is, is there because of some systemic issues or maybe a stuff-up. Don't ascribe motive. And the problem with grumbling is grumbling ascribes motive. Why is it a problem? I'm, I'm going to get back to how you heal it in a moment, and you might think I'm overdoing this, and I'm overcooking this, and I might be, and you might be entirely right, but I don't think so. I'll tell you why. I'll show you why. Um, it's been a great journey. And our, my, our small group on Thursday talked about this, and we had a, a robust discussion where they thought I was overcooking this. Um, but it's okay. Truth is not a democracy. It's okay. We could disagree. <laughs> no one else got there. A couple of laughing. Okay, so here's a commentator's comment, and I'm going to lead you into this theologically. Uh, one of the, a, a big technical commentary on Act 6 says this. Since the apostles appear to have administered the community resources at this stage, uh, complaints about the daily distribution of food were thus also a challenge to their leadership. Okay, who do we murmur and grumble about most in human systems? It's people in authority over us, typically. And we grumble about other people rather than dealing with it directly, rather than solving it. We ascribe motives. We have highly ambivalent relationships to authority figures, and we are very easily triggered to think the worst of those in authority. You see this all the time. At the deepest level, however, such grumbling is condemned in Scripture because it is seen as a complaint against God's gracious and providential care of His people. So, come with me on a journey into the Old Testament. Exodus 16. You're a Jew. Just imagine how lucky you are. One of the you're a Jew. It's awesome. And you've been in slavery. You've been being beaten to death, worked to death, starved to death, oppressed for generations. Then God miraculously rescues you. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's the Red Sea. It's chariots. It's drowning the Egyptian army. It's, you couldn't ask for a better outcome for the Jewish people. And on the immediate other side of this, what happens? They take all of that for granted, and they start grumbling about the lack of food. We've just got manna, and how boring is that? And God, you're not providing for us. You brought us here to die. And they murmur and they grumble. And the word translated here, grumbling, in the Hebrew, so from Hebrew to English, there's a Greek version of the Hebrew called the Septuagint that was around in the first century when Luke wrote Acts. The Hebrew word that is translated in our English grumbling is translated in exactly the same Greek word that Luke uses in Acts 6. It's the same word. Could have used many other words to talk about complaining. He used that word. Why? Because it is theologically loaded. And it evokes this whole story of grumbling over food. Assume all the good things, grumble about the scarcity or the deficit, and this is what he says. In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling. You read it, man. They grumble, grumble, grumble. Who are you? Who are we that you should grumble against us? You will know it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the morning and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So this is the problem the Israelites had. This is the problem you and I have. When our hearts are grumbling and complaining and murmuring 
against leadership and against provision and against the life that we find ourselves living in, what we are actually doing is complaining against God. We're grumbling about God's provision. Oh Lord, I don't like this manna. Back in Egypt, we had leeks and marrows and cucumbers, they say elsewhere. But here, you just give us manna. There's a, and this is deep in the human heart. We take for granted everything good and wonderful and extraordinary that God gives us, and we focus on the bits that actually make us feel a little bit unhappy. So I made one comment on social media this week about the liberal spill, and I was really distressed and distraught at some of what I saw. And it's nothing unusual. I see you know, people on the right in the U.S., my Christian friends on the right would make extraordinarily, I mean, just terrible comments about the Clintons and about Obama. So it's all of this. And I just made this point. I think it was on Jan's. Well, I said, isn't it wonderful? I'm so thankful that I live in a country where we can change leaders without bloodshed. Like, oh my goodness, how, how amazing is that? How extraordinarily wonderful. I mean, in spite of any other little thing you might grumble about, you go, wow, that is one of the great accomplishments of human society that we could do that. That's what we must protect. That's amazing, right? I said, ah, oh, yes. But we, we, we forget all the good. And we just focus on the little things that aren't going quite our way. And we grumble. And there's a deep spiritual problem with grumbling. Uh, it's not just in the Old Testament show you how deep it is. Look at this, Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul says, following on this wonderful description of the humility of Jesus and the way we are to live lives modeled on the humility of Jesus, he says this, do most things without grumbling or arguing. Hmm. I mean, the thing, you, you know, it's okay to grumble about church leadership, murmur and complain. It's okay to grumble about your politicians. Goodness me, you know. It's okay to grumble about your boss. Everyone's doing it. They're a turkey after all. No. It's okay to grumble about your physical health. I mean, one of the greatest, it's interesting, as, you, as I get older and as I live more, I go, one of the greatest inequalities in the world and lack of fairness is how physical wellness is distributed. It's It's terrible. I mean, just nuts, right? I said, it's okay to grumble about that. No, no, it's, isn't this? I mean, this is an all-encompassing command to people of faith that says we're to do everything without grumbling. And look, it's exactly the same word that Luke uses in Acts 6, and it's exactly the same word that is used in uh, Exodus 16 to describe the spiritual problem of the people of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, offer hospitality one another without grumbling. Now you say, why is that a problem? Well, now you're a Jewish Christian living, uh, you know, in, in, in 1 Peter maybe living in a, in a place like Rome or somewhere in, uh, in what is modern-day Turkey, and there are no hotels in the first century. So when a Christian person comes to visit your city, guess what happens? They come and stay with you. And, and you know what? 
The population density in the cities of the ancient world, like Rome, were, were, were substantially exceeded the population density of cities like New York and Hong Kong. People, you were in tiny apartments crowded together all on top of each other. And, and, you know, and now you've got someone you don't know, but who's a Christian, who's probably from a different culture. Maybe they're a Hellenistic Jew. Maybe they're even a Gentile. And maybe they're going to come in and they're going to lob in and you've got to open your home to them. Right? And you've only got one bed, if you're lucky. And everyone sleeps in the one bed, and you've got like one room. And now you've got a stranger lobbing into your bed, and they're different to you, and you, you have this profound racial prejudice against them that's been overcome by Jesus Christ. And, then, and they're there. And it's not just a dinner party guest who won't leave when you make drop hints like, could you just let the cat out on your way out while I put my pajamas on? You know, that, it's, not a, it's not a dinner guest who overstays their welcome. In the ancient world, when you opened your home to someone, you couldn't ask them to leave. It was a terribly shameful thing to withdraw hospitality. So now you've got someone who's lobbed in, eating your food, sleeping in your bed, taking up your space, annoying you, and there is no end date on their visit. So what do you do? You go to the church prayer meeting and you say, well, you know, I'd just like to pray for our family because, you know, we're just struggling a little because, you know, we've got this idiot who won't leave. <laughs> so can we pray? Yes, it's just grumbling. So it's, that's, I, don't, I say that to say the Bible is extraordinarily realistic about how hard it is to not grumble, but it still says we should avoid it. It's really hard. Be a church without grumbling. Be a family without grumbling. Be a political party without grumbling. That's the Christian stance in the world. Because, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, Paul says, do not grumble as some of them did, talking back, telling the story of Israel, and were killed by the destroying angel. I love that. I mean, it's so serious. It's so divisive, rebellion against God, rebellion against those in leadership and authority, division, uh, assuming the worst of each other, complaining to everybody, undermines unity, destroys community, and distracts the church from going out and being all that God wants it to be. It's so serious that God will actually send a destroying angel down to zap people who participate in it. Man. Tough call, hey? So, let's think about this for a moment. In our communities, who are we most likely, I said this before, you know, who are we most likely to grumble about, murmur about? Well, it's those in authority over us. Because, you know, we, and, and this is true, I've been doing some work at St. Andrew's Cathedral School, uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful school. And I've been helping out uh, as part of the consulting work I do in the city, uh, as part of our mission as a church. I've been in there helping their senior leadership team think about how to become a better team, how to lead Christianly. You know, you go to a school, oh goodness, the grumbling about the leader, about the head of school, about the head of department, about it, it, we just it's just it's always about someone who's in authority because we all think it's this person who is making our lives miserable because they're somehow a fundamentally bad person. And so we grumble and we complain, right? This is what uh, the writer to Hebrews says about church leadership. 
I just put it out there. It's not a popular verse to preach on in Anglican churches. Um, other denominations are better at this than us. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to them. Now, this is applied to church leadership, but I actually think, it, think about it in terms of your workplace as well, right? What stance, when you go to work, how do you engage with people in authority over you so that their work of managing and leading you is a joy? And that's not to say you don't address the hard issues. In fact, the paradox is when you submit to those in authority, and the Bible is very clear about this, when you submit to those in authority, when you don't have a heart of grumbling and murmuring towards those in authority, you're in a far better position to actually work with them to get them to change the stuff that is driving you nuts than if you murmur or complain. in your marriage? How do you, you know, I mean, our marriage partners disappoint us and we can murmur and complain to others, can't we? But you know what? You, you want to relate to your marriage partner so that their marriage to you is a joy. And murmuring and grumbling, it's like a relational death eater. Just sucks the joy out of everything, right? Doesn't it? So, what, dear friends, is the antidote to grumbling? Because I've unpacked the problem, right? Do you all feel the force of the problem? Okay. No? I haven't done a good enough job exposing the problem. Should I do some more? We could do some one-on-one -on -one discussions here and, you know. Okay, so, what's the antidote to grumbling? What is, dear friends, the antidote to grumbling? It's a better leader, yeah, no. Yeah. I was thinking it was better followers myself. <laughs> you were thinking wine? Okay. So we had better leader, we've had wine. I'm microdosing LSD. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> change jobs, better vocation. The, the antidote to grumbling is gratitude, biblically. It's gratitude to be thankful. To be thankful. See, you can't grumble, you can't murmur in the sense of. You're a bad person. This is a bad situation. I hate this. I'm going to attack this. If actually your fundamental heart orientation is that of gratitude towards the other person. Uh, so that is what the Bible says we're to be. We're to be, we're to be overflowing with gratitude towards God and towards each other. To have an attitude of gratitude. Conflicts are inevitable. How does this work? You see, I mean, this is not just the Bible, right? Um, because, because social science shows this to be the case as well. You, 
you want to transform your own mental wellness, start of every day, write down three things for which you're grateful. At the end of every day, write down three things for which you're grateful for that day. Start a gratitude journal. That's just common advice. You speak to anyone who's working in personal development and wellness, a gratitude journal. Massively, massively significant. If you've got a, and so this is, this is what the Bible says to us. You see, if, if we're fundamentally oriented towards grumbling towards God, if my grumbling about my health or my church or my workplace or my family or my kids, my wife, if, if the spiritual dynamic underneath that is actually I'm grumbling at God, how do I address that? Well, I have to learn to be thankful and grateful at all times towards God. I have to train my heart to be grateful. So here's what happens at a psychodynamic level when I train my heart to be grateful. Now, we have to do a little bit of an introduction into a psychodynamic theory here. And it's a way of understanding reality, and it's also very biblical. So psychodynamic theory says, um, I, here am I, right? And uh, I experience uh, you... And I experience you, and I, what, I, what I tend to do, what, what we do under stress and when we're young in particular, is uh, we split people. And we, we split them into, uh, into uh, all good, this is the good part of them, and all bad, right? And so when I am in a, in a primitive or a sinful uh, or a young or an immature state, what I tend to do is I can't, I can't experience you as both good and bad, as both satisfying and withholding, as both disappointing and wonderfully nurturing and nourishing. So the psychodynamic theorists posit, uh, so particularly Melanie Klein in this uh, last century uh, and those who built on her work, and I think it's very convincing and fits with Scripture, that what I do is I start to experience you uh, I, just, I just experienced the all bad part, right? So I see this, and this is where my murmuring and my complaining and my grumbling is. So the Hellenistic Jews complained about the apostles because they go, oh, they're racists. These are Hebraic Jews. They're Jewish Jews. They're, 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 in, they're, they're not just incompetent. They actually are favoring their own sort. And all they could see was how bad they were. Now, you see this in marriages, Right? So when a marriage is coming, when, when a marriage is dissolving, you get to this point where each person only sees, and here we add to our little drawing, you know, each person only relates to the other as all bad, right? So this person, so this is the good bit, this is the bad bit. So when this person sees their partner or their colleague as all bad, and then this person just sees them as all bad. Every, and you're always, everything is then interpreted in this light. You're just waiting for them to fail again. See what that means? Do, do, do you understand that? You, you can't, like, and, and you see couples, they get torn apart. You just, so you might have a detente. You might not have some active fighting for a week or a month, but it just takes a little thing for it to become a big thing because your heart is at war with the other person because you're splitting them psychodynamically. And so this is what we do with God as well. We complain and we grumble. We can't conceive that in this world God might actually be good because we find him disappointing. And so we split ourselves, actually. 
And so one of the things that can happen is we, we, we're not at peace with our own brokenness, that we're both good and bad, so we can't be at peace with each other's brokenness. So if I'm, if I'm fundamentally unable to reconcile the fullness of who I am in Christ, I can't allow you to be who you are. You've got to be either all good or all bad, and if you're not all good, you're all bad, and I'm going to attack you and grumble about you and murmur and complain. And that's what we do organizationally and relationally. And it's toxic, right? There's another way of thinking about this. How are we going for time? Oh, this is becoming a... I'm enjoying this lecture. Uh, uh, Martin Buber talks about the difference between experiencing someone in an I-thou relationship or an I-it relationship. Okay, so when I experience you as a thou, I-thou versus I-it. When I experience you split as all bad, I'm experiencing you and using you as an object, not as a person. You're the boss, the apostle, the leader, the blocker of my goals. I don't see you as, as a full human being with all your glory and all, you know. The path to emotional wellness and organizational healing is to actually heal this split and, and experience each other as whole objects, as, as whole people, the glory and the garbage working together in a really difficult, complicated, frustrating, disappointing environment where life is hard. And to show each other as much grace as we show ourselves, right? And guess what? Gratitude is the spiritual key that unlocks that transformation. Because when you train yourself to be grateful to God for somebody else, what are you doing you are healing this split. You can't experience someone as all bad if every day you are thanking God for them and you are thanking them for them and you're training yourself to be grateful. You just can't do it. That's why gratitude is so massively important. You train yourself. So here's the thing. Pick the person you are in the most conflict with at work and for the next month, Start every day with three things that you are grateful to God for them, in them, about them. And it might start off really basic. Dear God, thank you that they are not a psychopath with a chainsaw who's going to massacre me this morning. Like, you could start there. That's a good start. Betraying yourself. And we as a community, see, when you actually read the Bible, you look at Philippians, for example, the, the avoidance of grumbling and the contentment in Christ and the gratitude is critical for our witness in the world. What would it be like to step into a community that is characterized by an overflow of gratitude towards God and each other and our world? and not characterized by all the grumbling that continues all the time everywhere else in the world? What would it be to step into a church where, where the gratitude that we live in is going to transform how you treat your kids and your elderly parents and your spouse because you, you, we, just, we become disciplined to gratitude? 
And goodness me, we have so much more to be thankful for than we have to grumble about in every area of life. Don't we? Don't you? You do, don't you? It's hard. So how do you do it? What's the key then? So this gratitude unlocks a way to experience each other as whole beings, a way to build health, a way to keep us on target and keep us on track. What's the, what's the answer? How do we get there? Well, look at this, Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What is going to shift my heart from a place of grumbling and dissatisfaction with the world to a fundamental stance of gratitude to everything in the world? It's understanding that at the heart of the universe is a God who looks at me with all my disappointing foibles and brokenness and sin and selfishness and grumbling and misery and still gives his only son for me. Because when you read the biblical narrative, Exodus 16, God hears their grumbling. In a few instances, he smites them. But almost always what he does is he loves them and he serves them and he blesses them. And that culminates in Jesus. He hears our grumbling. He hears our dissatisfaction, our attacks on God. Oh God, how can you do this to me? All the problems in the world are your guys. I can't believe in you because you're not loving, because you're not visible. All this stuff. He looks at all our pettish petty selfishness, our, our inability to not grumble. I, I've tried not grumbling this week. It's an, I find it impossible. Like, it's just so hard. And God looks at all of that and he says, I will die for you. I will give myself to you in the person of my son. And if we understand that, if we have received that gift, of Jesus Christ into our hearts and we meditate on that and we drive that in, that changes how we live in the world. That is the spiritual power for gratitude because there's no greater gift than Jesus Christ laying down his life for you and for me. No greater gift. And if God has given me that, he's going to give me everything else so I don't have to grumble. He's going to take care of my decrepit body. It's all going to be fixed up one day. He's going to take care of my broken relationships. They're all going to be healed. He's going to take care of my disappointing political leaders because he's going to lead the world himself one day. He's going to take care of a disappointing church because he's going to make us all perfect and the church is going to be wonderful and radiant and glorious. And he's going to take care of my grumbling about myself. Don't you grumble? I mean, that's, that's the worst kind of grumbling. I'm chronically unhappy with me. And he's going to take care of me. He's going to give me a, a me that is glorious and lovable and perfect. And because he's given me Jesus, he's going to absolutely take care of all this other stuff. So there is no point at all in grumbling. Now, when we're free of grumbling... We can work on the problems, and we saw this, we see this in Act 6. They got on, and they, he, they restructured the church, deployed people to meet the needs, and the church continued to grow. That's the easy part. Restructuring is easy. Healing the heart is hard. But that's the business we're in. That's what Jesus wants to do. So, where is your, 
I had this one last picture to show you how wonderful I am as a, as a, here we go. Where is your grumbleometer? <laughs> and how do you get, how do you get Jesus? This is the goal, right? You get Jesus in here. You get the cross of Christ right in here. You get the Holy Spirit right in here. And then it dials down your grumbleometer, and it goes to zero, and then you just live a life of gratitude. How about that, eh? So let's pray. And uh, Lord God, we stand before you uh, so grateful that you are good and wonderful and loving and kind, that you gave us your son Jesus, even though we are grumbling uh, selfish, just feeble and frail and prone to wonder and hurt you and hurt each other and hurt ourselves, yet you gave us your son, Jesus. And I pray for our church. I want to pray two things, Lord, that you will, for every one of us in this room, you'll so fill our hearts with Jesus that we'll be so grateful that we'll, on the spot this morning, repent of all grumbling and then secondly, as we do that, we'll go out into this world and we will live lives characterized increasingly by gratitude. And when we go to work tomorrow, our colleagues will notice there's something has changed. When we go home over, over Sunday lunch or whatever we do today, people around us go, something's changed. And when people around us look at this church in the months and years to come, they'll go, something has changed. This is a people who don't grumble, but a people who are just full of gratitude. And we pray for this, Jesus, and beg you to do this in your wonderful name. Amen.